Hi, I'm Pastor Brian, and welcome to session four of Healing an Ethnically Wounded Nation, part of the Faith and Culture series at Bridgeway Christian Church. We want to thank you so much for taking the time to engage with this content. We hope that it has been both informative and transformative for you. We encourage you to continue to process this material after this session is done. We encourage you to seek God's heart in all of this and to continue to ask the question, God, what are you saying to me in all this content? We encourage you to lean into the areas where you're feeling uncomfortable because we know that it is often discomfort that spurs growth. As the series is concluding, we wanna point you to our website, faithandculture.church, where you'll find supplemental materials that'll help you continue to study and help you continue to be transformed as you seek to be part of healing our ethnically wounded nation. Thank you again for engaging with this content and enjoy the final session. Well, it's good to see everyone. Y'all ready to get into this? This is, uh, this is it. This is well, the big time of finishing up the series. We entitled this portion, What Then Shall We Do? So let me reiterate, if what we have been studying and what we've been talking about is true, and you're allowed to have an opinion otherwise. You're allowed to say, you know what, what I think that they've done a lot of work in, maybe they are misinformed. You're allowed to think that. But if indeed what we study and what we've been communicating is true, if indeed there are unhealthy systems, if there are unhealthy actions or behaviors or mindsets, if indeed God said, my heart is to fix stuff, what then do we do, right? That's why we're here. So to make it very simple, there are two things we need to do. One is we need to make some personal changes. The second one is we need to make some societal changes or some systems change. Now, we're going to start by talking about personal change, but there is an art form to creating change at all. Change can be really good and still be scary. Change can be healthy and still be scary. We have all set up our lives based on how things have been. But what if they don't need to continue like that? What if we need to make an adjustment? Well, anytime that happens, it makes a re-rack. It is much easier to go faster by keeping everything the same. But if it's wrong, it's wrong. Remember, we never decide whether or not we're going to do something based on the cost. We determine whether or not God says it's right or wrong, and then we do it. Does that make sense? All right, so I want to begin by the, talking about the art of creating change. So the first thing, it is very hard to do this, but please try to not get hung up on fault and defensiveness. When we start talking about something that needs to be fixed, immediately you go, I didn't do anything wrong hold on, I didn't even say you did anything wrong. And if you did something wrong, that might be the Holy Spirit telling you you did something wrong that I don't even know about, right? So before we get defensive, let's look at it this way. Look at it as a responsibility to make things better for those around you. Now, some challenges were in the past. Some challenges are still in the present. Now, if you're part of the actual problem, I need you to change. If you're not... How can you feed in healthy to support the change? For a lot of us, we're going to be seeing some things that we don't directly affect, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything 
Uh, that's where we're going to be talking. The other thing is I want to remind you on two things that we've been saying throughout the entire series. The first one is this is not about taking sides. I'm going to say it over and over and over again. You do not have to say, I'm either pro-black or pro-white. I don't have to say, I'm either pro-police or I'm pro-African-American. That's garbage. We're not doing that. Jesus Christ, that's the second thing, is he always controlled the narrative. He said, all the power structures want to draw me into a battle. I'm not playing that game with you. I'm going to go my way. I'm going to do whatever the Father tells me to do, and I don't care what party I'm offending right now. I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. So let's make sure that we don't get lost there. The other thing that is critical about change is that we need each other to do it. There is no one group that's going to suddenly come in and sweep in and fix everything. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a nationwide problem, which means we're going to need a nationwide partnership. So we need people from all over the place to partner together. I think that one of the most brilliant things about Pentecost, when indeed the Holy Spirit came upon the church, was that there were so many people from other nations that had gathered around, and God created a sight to behold. They began to hear the sound of the rushing wind. They saw the tongues of fire. They hear people speaking in other tongues, and it drew in people from all these different nations. Why? Because Christianity and the love of Jesus Christ is for all people, all nations, all tongues. That's the way it goes. And he drew them all together and said, if we're going to bring about a kingdom change, we need everybody coming in on this. And he brought everybody in. So, I will say this, the power of Christianity to bring change is significant. It was not only significant in the past, it is significant right now. In our midst, we have Pastor Don Proctor. He had been led by the Lord many, many years ago to bring about unity in our region and getting pastors together. It's the very place I met this gentleman, Bishop Parnell Lovelace. We would never be in this partnership and this love, friendship, joking around buddies if it wasn't for a, a man many years ago following through on a call of God and said, I want to get pastors from every ethnicity, I want to get pastors from every economic group, I want to get them from all the different, what, factors in Christianity, whether it's the Pentecostals, hanging out with the Baptists, hanging out with the Nazarenes, hanging, right? You would think, impossible. And yet, we now have quarterly meetings where there is in excess of 300 pastors getting together. Why? Because one man and his wife, who is a pastor as well, said, I will go. And they created something that had never been done before. So all I want to say is that when we start doing things as Christians and the Holy Spirit's a part of it, you can't stop it. Bishop? Dear ones, I want to commend you again for your heart and your commitment to walking with us through this journey and exploration through these last, now this being our fourth session together. It's been some hard conversation, some difficult conversation. And yet, someone asked me recently, they said, do you feel that this has been beneficial and meaningful as far as the dialogue? And I absolutely say yes, because I do believe that there is some exciting discussion that is happening amongst us. Some of you have said, I've not heard this information before. Others have said, I've heard it before, but I'm, I'm applying it differently. I'm thinking through it. I'm processing it differently. So this is good. I, I, I hope that you have, through your time 
in this discussion have, have really focused on the common theme that which really threaded throughout this discussion is that we are locking into our identity in Christ. That, that really is the focus. It's exploring the various aspects of ethnicity. It's exploring the challenges of racism and bigotry and the marginalization that takes place within society. But we are really locking into who we are as the body of Christ. Without hesitation, our identity must be affirmed in Jesus Christ. I am first, hear me, I am first and foremost a child of God. I'm a child of God. And not only am I a child of God, I am a man. And not only am I a man, but I am ethnically connected to the African-American community and African-descended people. That, that's who I am. I, I don't shun from that, as I told you uh, in our time together in previous discussion. I love everything about being an African-American man. I love it. I love my culture. I love my people. I have a song on my iPod that I listen to quite frequently, and it talks about the fact that we are some beautiful people, and I affirm that. But beyond that, my primary connection with others is within the kingdom of God through our spiritual identity. Paul brings it out like this in 2 Corinthians 5 and 16 through the 21st verse. Listen to his words. Listen to how he states this. From now on, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, that's all of us, to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, God. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, all of us, and those that are in the body of Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As ambassadors, Every one of us called to be those ambassadors of reconciliation. The question that we must ask, the question that we must constantly put before our hearts and make sure that we resonate upon is how do we engage and influence change within a challenging and temporal society? So let's talk about personal change, yeah? I mean, all of us have things going on in our lives, and we'll begin there. So we're going to kind of do uh, a little bit of a, a list here of things to look over. And the, they're in no particular order. All of them are going to focus on intentional living and intentional engagement. But we begin with a couple of these. The first one is that all of us need to reassess our judgments, our assumptions, and our stereotypes. Ignorance still re remains the number one reason for personal prejudice and discrimination. 
almost always there's an ignorance, whether it was given to you by someone that taught you, whether or not you just stumbled into it. Usually, if there's a fear of the unknown, education can open that doorway, right? And we can kind of have some more connection. So right off the bat, we need to reassess judgments, assumptions, and stereotypes. But in doing so, let's be careful, just as believers, to not chastise other people based on our assumptions. So we say, well, you should do this, or it should be like this. You may be correct, but I'm not so sure that everyone can always do the right thing all the time, or the scenario can always be the perfect scenario. Sometimes we're just living in a messy world, right? So we need to cut each other some slack. And when we have assumptions and resistance, ask yourself this, what are you really afraid of? What is possibly going to go wrong? Because a lot of times we're facing a phantom fear that's not really as scary as we think it is. We think change is going to mean something bad, but what if change means something good? You see, our flesh cried out to not receive Jesus because what is it going to mean for me? I can tell you that I sit in a room of majority believers, and I think you all can say that was a good trade, right? That was significant change, and the change meant better, not worse. So I'm going to say that if we're going to examine these things, here's the point. we got to control and filter our media inputs. If we are consistently listening and receiving from inflammatory flamethrowers, if we are consistently hanging out and listening to rhetoric that is constantly fueling the fire, we need to be cautious. Is there a way to get information in a healthy fashion that is not constantly trying to cause more problems? So let's watch that. The second piece is that we need to be peacemakers. To be a peacemaker means there is no peace yet. You got to go make it, right? Now, how are you going to make peace? You're going to bring Jesus into the situation. That when you take a bitter situation and bring Jesus into it, then it makes it sweet, right? So our answer to whatever situation is we need to bring Jesus and the Holy Spirit into it that we might watch him make the peace. Peacemakers. Number three, we need to have deep conversations with those that are different from us. Once again, don't automatically defend yourself, listen, de-escalate, avoid inflammatory stories or hyping up more just to make a point. Please don't do that. We need to elevate the dialogue from simple, I'm going to throw a soundbite to you that I heard so-and-so say. We need to elevate the dialogue to say, is there a more noble thing that we need to be talking about? Is there something bigger? Is there something deeper? Here's the other thing. Your background, your hurt, your personal pain, your judgments, all that makes conversation very difficult. I was having a conversation with someone very close to me with my family recently, and I'm kind of on this, uh, I'll say mandate, um, to begin to talk about some of these issues with everybody that I know. Now, sometimes that goes good. Sometimes that does not go well. well. I happened to run into an unusual buzzsaw because I had no idea. So I start talking with somebody very close in my life, uh, 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 an older lady, and I said, uh, hey, these are things going on. I'm thinking about this. And she started getting agitated. And I was like, well, that's weird because normally this is not a big deal for her. And she said, 
My, be my best friend in high school was trampled by the Black Panthers and killed. Okay, that was random, didn't see that one coming. In other words, when you walk into a scenario, there may be stories you don't even know. I didn't know that. Well, sure enough, when you start talking with somebody else and you wanna just talk about what the news says, you don't realize sometimes that there's pain that is going underneath that, and so you go storming in as if it's theoretical, and it's not theoretical. It's personal pain. It's personal difficulty. So, listen more than you speak. Listen more than you speak. Clarify expectations and conversations. There's gonna be times that you disagree, and that's okay. You do not have to see everything the same way. We're not trying to win, we're trying to grow. Big difference, all right? And then number four, be transformed by Christ. You're like, yeah, 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 you're a preacher, you always say that stuff. Okay, I'm just telling you, he is the solution to everything we're talking about, so we need to be transformed by Christ. Now, let me give you a practical example. Peter. Peter was raised, and I'm talking about the Apostle Peter, the one that was kind of the leader of the crew, right? He's a little bit of a wild card, a little bit of a uh, kind of speak before you think kind of guy. Well, he was going to lead the crew, so Jesus and the Holy Spirit needed him to be all in if he was going to lead any type of movement, he had to get rid of some issues that he had in his heart. I don't know if you remember this, but he ended up getting a vision. And the vision was it lowered down this sheet, and it was all these unclean animals in the Jewish world, which means they were ceremonially unclean. He wasn't supposed to touch them. And God said, I want you to interact with this. And he said, I don't ever do that. He did it three times and then pulled up the sheet. Sure enough, here comes a Gentile to his house that God had sent and he said, this man needs to be ministering to you, and you guys need to work together. Listen to what Peter said. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I'm in Acts 10, right? But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And you're like, man, what a breakthrough, right? Here we have all this racism falling off of Peter, and he now has a new mindset. If you all read Galatians, do you remember what happened later? He used to hang out and eat with the Gentiles and was starting to get into a new groove and having a bigger team. And then one day, some Orthodox hardcore Jews came into town and Peter started backing up from the Gentiles because of the pressure around him and the peer pressure. It says Paul came in and he said, I rebuked him to his face because what he was doing was not the heart of God. Okay, what's my point in that? We're all works in progress, right? We take, what, two steps forward and whoa, now we're taking two steps back. Wait, why are we starting here? We are all in process. We're all trying to progress forward. Number five, we need to be healed ourselves. We need to be healed ourselves. Not just the abused, but the abuser as well. Let's talk about those that have been abused by racism, whether it be systemic or personal prejudice and bigotry and things like that. If there is wounding within you, and there is so much wounding in our nation, we need to continue to seek healing. But after you've been stigmatized, labeled, placed into an overwhelming system, blocked from moving forward, sometimes you have 
hope fatigue. You don't have any hope anymore. It's like, why do I even bother? Nothing changes. Here's my heart for you. No matter where you are, if you've received hurt from someone else, we need to have an identity restoration, what Bishop was talking about. Internal building upon hope and strength. We cannot lean into the victim mentality. We need to allow God and his redemption to lift us back up. He tells us to live in forgiveness. Well, that's easy to say for somebody that's not hurting, isn't it? But when you're hurting, that's when forgiveness matters the most. I'm not telling you that as a judgment on you. I'm only telling you that it is the way to go forward. I read uh, an article about Corey Ten Boom the other day to a bunch of kids. Now, that sounds mean. She was the one that was in the Holocaust. She, ever since after that, she was Dutch. She said, I've been running a home for those that were victims of the Holocaust. She said, I'll just tell you this. The ones that forgive leave my facility with light hearts. The ones that don't die in my facility. I just... All I'm telling you is I want you to live and survive and thrive, and I'm not telling you you have to forgive. I'm just begging you to forgive because it's the only way for you to move forward. That's all I'm saying. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. But here's an interesting perspective. Um, one of our colleagues, uh, David Heitzler, right? So he's also in our midst. We're going to call him out. Uh, he works a lot in the world of counseling and, and caring for people. He said, you know what? He said, intriguing studies have been done that it's not just the abused that actually needs to heal. The abuser needs to heal. Why? Because when you do something and shame forces it into the darkness, your dysfunction keeps bleeding on everybody around you, and you're creating a systemic problem. You start wrecking your family, and nobody knows that you were the abuser because you won't tell anybody, but that's eating you alive inside. All I'm saying is that we all need to be healed. The healthiest mindset, in my opinion, is that all of us, when we learn this stuff, is that we're agitated enough for action, but peaceful and hopeful enough to appreciate what God is doing and to get traction off the real changes being made. As I transition to my buddy, I'll just say this. It really means that we have to get involved in each other's lives, caring for one another, being involved mentoring. Please hear me on this one. Some of you are like me. We're a bit more type A of you want to grab something and just take it and run with it. Let's be very careful that we don't come in as I'm the hope from outside and I'm going to do everything. That would be a mistake. We need you, but we don't always need you to take over. Bishop? So what can we do? What has been done what's happening now, and what do we anticipate will happen. That's where the discussion has to move. You all know that my background was that of social work, so I love this kind of stuff. You know, how do we problem solve? How do we come and come up with solutions? I'm in the process of writing my second book that is entitled The Return of the Kushite, The Reconciling Message of the African American Community. Some of the things I'm going to share with you in these next few moments are some of my thoughts, my observations. I had a gentleman who did not know that I was writing this book, and he called the other night, called the house, and he said, 
Bishop, we really need to hear what's inside of you. There's, there's a message that's in you, and we need to hear it. That was encouraging to me in so many ways. We, we must all understand that the role of responsibility in creating sustainable, and I might add, substantial change uh, falls upon all of us. It's not just black people, it's not just white folks, not just red folk, yellow folk, all of us have a responsibility to play in order to see sustainable change. The black community is making some progress in maximizing opportunities that are afforded to our people. Yet there's a need for continual community allies. That's where a lot of you play that part. There's a need for community allies, people who come alongside and advocate for change. What is not often highlighted, even within the African-American community, are the successes, the success stories that are taking place among African-American people. And as a result of that, we miss the opportunity to bring acknowledgement that black people are resilient, they're creative, they're strong in their entrepreneurial pursuits, they're intellectuals, they're diverse. They are people who have faced great opposition as, an, as a community, as a nation, despite the ongoing disparities that we're still seeing in various areas and segments, which we've talked about. Yet, black folks have not just we shall overcome, but they're overcoming, despite. So it's not merely a sad, oh me, woe me story that would produce this thinking of being a victim. There are some of us, many of us, that are standing and rising up above all of that and saying, watch me, we acknowledge the pain of our past. We don't disregard that, but we don't camp out there. There is something within hearts and the minds of a people that say, we can go forward. We can do some things. And then the key is taking that responsibility to reach back for those who are still struggling, the marginalized, those who are facing injustice, those that are facing the, the horrors of racism in our nation. In just a couple of weeks, I will have the opportunity to head down to Washington, D.C. to serve on a group, a panel of five different speakers that will be addressing faith-based, housing, economic development, energy, and public safety initiatives there at the Capitol. And it's going to be my honor to sit with politicians, faith leaders, different community leaders as we talk through these things. But I don't want to go in as a victim. I want to go in as an advocate. I want to go in, and by the way, I'm the only preacher on the team. So I want to go in as the calling that I have, and that is being a man of God, one who speaks prophetically to the powers that be to let them know that there is 
a word from the Lord. There's direction. And so, sadly, and we know this, there will always be people who exude racism. There are still some folks who are the holdouts of hatred and anger and bitterness. But how do we choose to respond? Not only as African-American people, but as people, those of us who are allies. How we choose to respond becomes our focus. I bring you some suggestions. First, those that have moved forward past barriers of racism and things that have sought to restrict must be willing to reach and encourage others, others who are coming beside us to resist implicit or explicit oppressive paradigms. It's very important. Second, the black community must never be dependent upon anything or anyone apart from God. Yes, support is good. Hear me, beloved. Dependency is detrimental to creative progress. I'm not looking for the government to do anything. That's not my, that's not my trust. That's not where my confidence lies. People are all frustrated about this po political party or this whoever's in the White House and all of this. The last I check, God is still sitting on his throne. Amen. That's what's important to me. Third, the black community must learn to invest within itself. This past weekend, after I'd been a wedding down in the Bay Area, I was hungry. I wanted some food. And I wanted to go to a black-owned business to support my community. So I went to a restaurant there in Fairfield called Shea Soul. The place was packed. And I'd ordered my food approximately 30 minutes on the road heading to Fairfield. And when I got there, they said, it's going to be another 30 minutes. So I said, I can deal with that. And then after 30 minutes, the food still had not come. I was taking it home. They said, it's going to be another 15 minutes. I waited there almost an hour and 45 minutes. Now, I know some of you would say, why didn't you just get your stuff and go home? <laughs> because... First of all, I wanted to hold accountable, hold to some accountability, that establishment. There are some people who would say, watch this, I'm not going to go here ever again. But notice they won't say that about Red Lobster up the street or about this restaurant or that restaurant. But many times in the black community, we will cut our own self short and not support our own. I held them accountable and ended up with a free piece of cake out of it, too. <laughs> Black businesses and economic empowerment, African-Americans must reinvest in themselves. 96% of Black businesses are uh, what we call led by sole propriety, which in essence means, in essence, it means that we have people working for themselves. Now, the, the sad thing is, is that the biggest issue within black businesses today is not access to capital. There, there's a big argument among even many African-Americans that we don't have access to capital. And I, I debate that as do others. It is not that we don't have access to capital. It's more a question of the scale of capacity. In other words, 
There can be an organization that says, we want to contract to a black business or to a business period. We want to contract it out. And they would say, in order to contract it out, you have to come to the table with this amount of money. But the problem is, many of the black businesses do not meet the ability to provide that money at the table. And what's sad about it, they'll be standing next to some of the same businesses and organizations that are similar to themselves, and they also cannot come to the table because of the scale of capacity. Now, what would happen? Here's my question that I pose even to my brothers and sisters. What would happen if instead of us stepping back and using the excuse that there's no access of capital, what would happen if we build our scale by partnering merging, coming together by joining with another brother or sister who has a business similar to mine. If the contract calls for a baker, instead of me being able to say, hey, I can't do it, and just stepping back and the other person saying, I can't do it, and stepping back, what if we pool our resources as other communities do, and then we come with the resources needed? I don't believe that, listen to this, that you can be denied by anyone when you come with the authority and the power that is in you. The black community has more resources than we give ourselves credit. We have more that's at our ability than we allow ourselves to do. And I'm going to say this, and I can get in trouble for this, but I'll just say it because I'm really talking to you all through a lens of what I communicate many times to audiences in the African-American community, and that is this, is that competition and the lack of accountability is destroying our community. We are competing with one another instead of doing what is a part and very innate part of the nature of the African-American community, and that is community, collectivism coming together, partnering together, not relying upon outward resources, but using the resources that we have. And I say that to say that, you know, there's so much that I, I'm, I'm putting into this book to really challenge some of our thoughts regarding this. There are four pillars in the black community that are challenged right now. The historic black colleges and universities, often referred to as HBCUs, at one time in the 1930s, there were 235 of them. Now there's 103. But what's fascinating about that is only 7% of the graduates of HBCUs, after they graduate, join the Alumni Association to support the school that they graduated from. And so these schools are beginning to face all different uh, types of financial challenges. The economic institutions, the banks, which there's estimated to be approximately 22 African-American-owned banks. The black media, we had Larry Lee here a couple of weeks ago talking about the black newspaper and its impact upon the community and the challenges that are being faced there. And then also, sadly, even the church. The church is not particularly in the black community, it is not having the impact that it once had because what's happening, big part of it is that 
this attitude of competitiveness and lack of accountability is challenging us. Let me close with these thoughts as well. This whole digital technical divide that is taking place, there's a need for literacy and training that needs to happen. My, my niece, whom we're raising, we've been talking to her about college, and I've been stressing to her, I need you to really lock into some of the areas of digital and technical advancement. You don't have to be a scientist, but you need to know these things. And I said something to her the other day, and I think it shocked her. I said, sweetheart, I appreciate the fact that you want to go into studying African-American studies and all of that. I say, do that, but don't let that be your major because that won't get you a job. They won't hire you to talk about being a person who has studied African-American studies. That won't bring you a job in many communities. You might be able to teach here or there, but that won't take you into the areas that you need to go to be able to take care of yourself so that you're not dependent upon someone else. So I want her to get into what we refer to as STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math programs. Fourth, we, we, with any relationship that we have, Pastor said this a moment ago, it is imperative that we be intentional regarding meaningful conversations one with another it doesn't just happen. And last, and I wrote a book on this, we must, as African-American leaders who are advancing in age, we must get out of the way and raise up leaders behind us so that they have the opportunity to step forward and carry our people into greater success. And that's a hard discussion. That's a hard discussion all across the board in all sectors to get mature leaders to understand that if we're to move forward as a people, as a community, we must be willing to operate in succession and empower those with different thoughts than us. They don't think like I think. There are people who are following me. They do things very, very different. And they think very, very different. But I need them to step into the place of leading our nation into success. Pastor. So Bishop took us to a whole other level, right, where we're talking about societal change, that it's, it's not just enough to make personal change. Once again, it's not enough, it's been said, to simply not be a racist. There actually are things that need to be done, right? We need to have some actual change. Good intentions don't fix systemic problems. So I'm going to revisit what we addressed in week two about six different systems. I think that we may have some fixes or some helps or some adjustments that would make it a bit more equitable and a bit more healthy. So I'm going to go through those again but I need to say this, through all of them, there is an economic challenge route. So you're going to go, well, how do you fix that? A lot of it goes back to an economic problem. So you're going to hear me talk about economics much more than you're going to hear me talk about anything else, because at its core, it continues to cause 
a lot of other problems. So let's review these six systems and consider what could be done to make them healthier. Uh, number one dives right into it. That is the issue of poverty. We talked about poverty being a massive issue, but what can we do about it? So the first thing we got to do is awareness changes choices. We've got to be educated, so I thank you for being at something like this. You are far more educated now than the average person out there on some of these issues just by going through these weeks. Have a vote and use your voice appropriately. That is the second one. Some financial systems are only adjusted by government bodies, and they will only be affected by voting. So in other words, our vote focus should be for healthy society even more than personal benefit. I need us all to take the concept and go a little bit higher. You would say, well, this, if I voted for it, would be better for me personally. I need you to think more noble. It may not be best for you personally, but it would be best for society. I need us to begin to think in those terms. Let me give you an example. Um, there was a... Uh, one of our leader friends, uh, who will remain nameless on this one, is she did a lot of study about a uh, Safeway that was going to be put into a disadvantaged area of Sacramento. As a matter of fact, they knew that it was coming in. It was going to bring 160 jobs. They ended up saying, if you build here, we will do everything we can to allow you to come in and build here, but we need the jobs to stay local. We don't want you to bring in other things. The idea is how do we get a bunch of jobs from this disadvantaged area? They made an agreement that they would hire initially all jobs first from the immediate area. It was like a huge win. When it came time to go down, and I'll make that long story short, it went for a vote before the community. The community is predominantly, uh, I mean, it's very, very mixed, but because it had to go out to a greater county vote, it was predominantly white, meaning the numbers. It was voted down. Why? Because there was a possible environmental effect of having a gas station put in as part of Safeway. Now, is environment matter? Yes. I'm not telling you it doesn't. Are we trying to be wise of thinking bigger in terms of the environment? Yes. But you understand, after all this hard work of trying to get some jobs to handle some of the poverty issue, it ended up getting sidelined because another subject came in and stopped it. Now, ultimately, it's going to get done, but it's going to get done in a different way, and we lose out on all the work that we did. So, once again, vote with a bigger picture in mind. Number two is investment opportunities. We're going to hear a lot about that. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I just want to say this. The more we can pour resources of our wealth into minority businesses, the more we can pour our wealth into economically challenged areas, investment, support. Now, once again, you heard Bishop say this. When we come in, there are already organizations that are working with a healthy structure. Our job is not to reinvent the wheel. Our job is to be partners, to come alongside and say, what do you need? How can we help you out? You always go with the locals, right? The locals know what's up, they know what's really going on, and they know what to do about it. Here's the other thing. If you have a personal career 
that can help create jobs. You can do a hiring pattern. You can be aware. I need you to just hire and promote with a much more advanced and wise perspective, right? It's always about jobs. We need jobs for minorities that because of other challenges in the, in the education system and stuff like that, we need jobs with easy on-ramps that have high growth opportunity, right? So for example, repairing roads, landscaping, things that say, listen, maybe I didn't get all the educational opportunities that somebody did over on this side. I still need to have a job that I can get into, but it can't just be a dead-end job. That doesn't go anywhere. Somehow we need industries that will allow easy on-ramps to where someone that puts in the initiative can work up into something that would help them build for their future. That's what we want. The challenge, though, is that there's not a lot of jobs and industries open still consistently to a lot of minority groups. I was talking with a, uh, a buddy a while back, and he was saying that because where he was at, there was no job openings. He lived in Oakland. Oakland is, a, is the downtown part of Oakland is very small, and he said within that 12-block radius, he said, there were no real jobs. He said, so what I started doing is he said, I would go with family and we would go all the way down to LA and we would buy super cheap stuff in the back alleys and then I would go back up and I would sell it. He had to create his own industry. He was 12, 13, 14. Well, at some point, that's not really paying the bills. And within that area, you start looking for any industries that are open, and if most of them are closed, I'll tell you a couple industries that are open to you is drug dealing. That's not closed and managed by whites. Anybody can get in. And so that's how he began to do drug dealing because it was the only way to make money for his family. What I'm saying is that the more and more we can create job opportunities, the more we can open up things to say, hey, easy on-ramp, we can do this, we got a future, all right. We need to be wise and fair in our hiring and our promotion practices in our jobs, but jobs are more than just economic, are they not? Sometimes we just need to be around other people that are advancing forward and have hopeful hearts and they're working hard and it fills them full of personal pride, not in a bad way, in a great way. We need some of that. And I would like all of us to reassess in your heart and mind, no matter where you stand on the issue, I need you to really reassess the issue of programs like affirmative action. Boy, does it have like a polarizing sound. The minute somebody hears it, oh, that's, that's this, and it's backwards racism, and it's that. Here's the problem. We have a problem, and we need to fix it. How do we fix it? Well, sometimes we need to have programs that help to fix it. I don't know what you want to call them, but here's my point. And I'll just highlight this without stepping too much on Bishop's toes here. But this other leader that I was talking to who is now master's degree, huge leader in our community. The only reason that she was ever able to get the education was because of a government program called Manpower back in the day. It was an affirmative action program. Her mom was dirt poor and would never be able to help her go to school. She took it and ran with it. Our very own bishop was the beneficiary of a government program. He is now on his second doctoral program. Why? 
because he took the help, put it to the best use that he may not have had the opportunity in another way. All I'm telling you is that when we have a disadvantage, we have to figure out a way to make it equitable so that everyone gets a shot to do the same type of work, if that makes any sense. So whatever you want to call it, I get it. I remember that when I was doing this study, I ended up going to, uh, uh, I ended up studying the political difference between uh, white and black. Traditionally and numbers-wise, the black community tends to be Democratic, and the white community tends to be Republican, and there's a big fear of big government and things like that. And I was like, how is there like a discrepancy? And sometimes it's as simple as this. When you have personal challenges, sometimes the government's the only one that's going to help you out at all. When your neighbor doesn't like you, the only protection you get is from the government. And there's a different view of how help can come Whereas other people, if you don't need it, you don't want them encroaching and causing a problem. So we have a various perspectives. Once again, you're allowed to view however you want to view it. I'm just telling you to take a fresh look on what might help out. So we need to root out stuff like predatory lending, and we could go on and on, but I'm going to jump through the rest of these very rapidly. Now, economic stuff underlies all the rest. Number two is education. Not all schools are equal. Poverty area schools struggle. They're at a disadvantage. The best stuff follows the money. Is there a way we can fix that? Some of you are going to be more creative and more brilliant than we will ever be. Please put your heart to that. Number three, we talked about the issue of drugs. In a society where it's difficult to find a job, discrimination and systemic racism makes it even harder, and that creates an undue temptation to get into the only industries open, as I shared. But here's what I need you to do about the issue of drugs. I need you to humanize. I need you to understand that addiction is real and they are people. So, for example, sometimes we write people off, right? Oh, well, you're now incarcerated, so you must not have value. Problem is, is when Robert Downey Jr. went through his situation, and ended up going through his problems and was found wandering around on the streets, and he got opportunities and got his life back together, he's now considered a success story. Does everybody get the same opportunities that Robert Downey Jr. had? Maybe not. Number four was the issue of policing. Police go where the crime is. Crime is magnetically drawn to poverty. Poverty, desperation, and depression creates more crime opportunity, needs to be policed, puts the police in the same neighborhoods over and over and over, tensions increase. Here's what I think we can do to tweak it a little bit. More training and awareness to encourage healthier and safer interactions. Number two, have creative partnerships. I was listening to a podcast the other day and a chief, police, a chief of police in another area said, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. He said, when we had all our team go out on the streets and we had a problem, we were like, hey, we got one opportunity. We can either arrest you or not arrest you. We can either incarcerate you or not incarcerate you. He said, but what we found was a lot of our beat cops were running into people that had mental illness and they didn't know what to do. So you just arrest them. He said, what I started doing was partnering all of our officers with social workers. And so when they would go out on their patrols, you had a social worker on one side and a cop on the other, and it allowed them to say, we now have a variety of tools to handle a situation. All I'm asking is that we would have creative ways to solve. And you go, where are you going to get the money for that? 
I don't know. But people that are smarter than me know. Number five, judicial system. Here's my challenge with the judicial system. What defense can you afford? The wealthier you are, the more it's likely you're going to get out. The poorer you are, the less. I don't like that. That doesn't seem to me as just as it could be. So here's the deal. I remember hearing this story that it's really, really sweet to pull bodies out of the river when you see bodies floating down the river, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, that person's all beat up and everything. And you then create a ministry on the river and you're pulling bodies out. But at some point, don't we need our wisdom to say, shouldn't we go upstream and find out why all these bodies are getting in the river? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So for a lot of us, we go, we have a mass incarceration problem. Okay, I love that you're ministering there. Can we go upstream and see why they're getting in there? Because maybe there's some tweaks we can do up there. So I'm going to encourage things like this. There is a danger to zero tolerance policies because it starts forcing the hands of certain people. There's a danger to mandatory minimums because it takes it out of the hands of a judge who says, actually, as I'm looking at this, I think this young man can be rehabilitated. He doesn't have that option anymore. I think that three strikes laws force hands as well. I think that the impact of prosecutorial and judge discretion, if there is prejudice, causes a problem. Not all racists are created equal. Some have more power than others. Number six, mass incarceration, our prison system. Poverty affects loss of hope, lack of funds for quality appeals, and the likelihood of going back. Nobody is saying that bad guys shouldn't be put away. Nobody's saying that people shouldn't be held accountable. Here's what I'm saying. A prisoner doesn't stop being a person. And I'm wondering whether or not there is a better way to focus on getting our kids away from going in as opposed to simply caging them once they're broken. I don't know if that's the best. In prison, there is a significant amount of mental illness. And that's the only reason why they're there. Because when you're mentally ill, you don't make good choices and you do horrible things. I think rehab might be a little better than caging. Amen? Okay, let me just finish with this thought. We need to understand the concept of protest. Y'all, we have had some protests happen in Sacramento. And there's a bunch of different reactions to it. Some are like, oh my goodness, there's a protest. Some people are going, thank goodness, there's a protest. <laughs> right? Here's what I need you to understand about protest. They're scary. They're scary for a reason. But I need you to understand this part. History has proven that nothing gets done without protesting. Why? Because it's how people are told they get done. They tried the peaceful route. Nobody cared. It wasn't until they did a sit-in that there was a change. There wasn't until the refusal to get off the bus that there was a change. There was not until a protest that there was change. What has history taught? No matter how much you talk, it doesn't matter. Everyone argues, well, how come nobody's coming with calm heads? They did. They were all in a room, and you never heard about it. So I just need you to understand that not everybody that protests wants to protest, but it's a matter of how am I ever going to get anything done? So I want to just encourage this. If there is something that you believe is healthy, and that is a good change, the idea that you would show up doesn't mean suddenly you've sold out Jesus. We don't always have to fear protesting. Sometimes we just need to lend our ear.
Bishop. I don't know how many of you all watched the funeral of Aretha Franklin. Did any of y'all watch it? About two, three faithful ones. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I probably watched a good 80% of it. If you all know, it went on for probably close to seven to eight hours. And uh, you almost needed a lunch break in between the you know, different things that were happening. But the thing that was impressive about it, if you did see it, is that you had an opportunity to be invited into the African-American experience as it relates to the church and even some of the politics, which for many in the black community, it's inseparable. If you get a chance to go back and see the live stream of it, or not necessarily the tape, I should say, you should go back and watch it because it, it shows you a picture of black people. It shows you the tension that's even within the African-American community. It shows you the success. It shows you the pain. The thing that's fascinating to me as I was looking at it is that the question must be asked, has the African-American community made advancement? Yes. Is it challenged? Yes. Are there still struggles? Absolutely. Have there been some successes? Absolutely. There's so many things that are happening. That's where the tension, that's where the struggle, that's where the challenge comes in. Everyone in the black community is not necessarily in agreement with how the change is should take place. That's a fact. We've been blessed in the region here to have some dynamic resources and people and leaders that have led our community in some fascinating ways. One of them you'll hear from in a few moments. She, uh, Cassandra Jennings, I consider her to be one of the most prolific leaders, not just in our region, but in our nation. She leads, the, she's the CEO of the Sacramento Urban League, great organization, which was founded, the Urban League was founded by W.E.B. Du Bois, tremendous leader within the black community, and she has worked and done some things, and the gentleman you'll hear in a few moments, Kwame, he's doing some things there. They're operating at different spectrums and different approaches. Which one is working? All of them. We need all of them. One of the things that is often communicated, even within the black community, is that we need a leader. And usually it's a reference back to a leader like Dr. Martin Luther King. And I push back at that. We don't need a single leader. We need many leaders. We need many leaders that step up and mentor and guide and, and help us shape our community that are willing to come alongside communities that are aligning themselves with us, allies, that are able to work through the hard conversations. That's the type of leaders we need. And I just want to, again, say I want to encourage you, family, here at Bridgeway, continue to do the things that you're doing to keep pressing in on this. We need you. Again, I'm, I'm grateful for all of the different things that 
have been afforded to me in my life, but I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'll be very honest with you on this, is that I still don't wait for anyone to do anything for me. Now, hear me. Some people say, oh, that's right. You should pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, sometimes you need someone to give you laces. I don't need the boot, but I may need you to give me the laces so that I can have at least an advantage. But I won't. Listen, after I tell you thank you, after I tell you I appreciate you, my dependency will not be upon what you did. My dependency will be upon the God who allowed you to be able to support and care. That's my dependency. And I'm very adamant about that. I think that sometimes my argument within the black community is that we're waiting for this to happen. We're waiting for that to happen. We don't have to wait for anything to happen. We just have to go out and step forward and do it. And again, have allies like you all that say, we can do all things through Christ, Amen. which strengthens us. That's good. As we wrap up this time and head into um, one of our guest speakers, Kwame Anku, I just want to read a testimony to you. I understand it's a little bit more lengthy. However, I believe it encapsulates what the power of one person can do that has allowed the Holy Spirit to move through them, and it would have a massive impact. Y'all ready to hear this? This is powerful. Dear Pastor, please bear with me a moment while I tell you a story that's in regard to your message Sunday in your Heart to Heart Part 2 series. If y'all remember, that was through the book of Philemon and talking about some of these issues. She said, recently my mother passed away. It was quite quick and unexpected. We found ourselves in the SICU at UC Davis, the local hospital. The little waiting room there makes complete strangers into a weird kind of family. Everyone in there is in a strange place of grief and hope at the same time. On our second day, a young man was brought in after a terrible car accident with a big rig. We were in the hallway waiting to go in to see our mom when 50 devoted Muslims came walking down the hall. It was quite something to see. We went in to see our mom, and when we came out and went into the waiting room, there were several non-Muslim women standing together, and the rest of all the Muslim people were crammed into one section of the waiting room. The women that were non-Muslim called me and said, come sit with them where they were sitting. I said, no, that's okay. I sat down with my 16-year-old niece who was sitting with the Muslim women. I was shocked that the white women would have such a reaction to the Muslims and would refuse to clear space so they could sit. My niece and I moved other people's stuff and cleared places for the Muslim women to sit. They were wailing. I sat there and watched their brokenheartedness and asked the Lord, what can I do for them? And he spoke into my heart, just like what you talked about yesterday, Pastor. I got up and went over and held each one of those ladies. I held them in my arms and I allowed them to lay their head on my chest and cry. I comforted them and prayed silently and just let them mourn as long as they wanted. I kissed them and they kissed me. They lined up and each took a turn and I poured every ounce of love I had on each and every one of them. And my nieces were holding the little children why they were waiting to go see their hurt family member. Soon more of their family came, and it was unbelievable how fast they mobilized and had tons and tons of food there. They offered us food and drink, and at that point, the only ones left besides the large Muslim family was my family. During the time the women were there, the men were out in the hallway on their prayer mats. One man was crying out prayers that reminded me so much of what you would hear in a Jewish synagogue 
Actually, I think that's what sent most of the people out of the place. When the women and children finished their visits, the men came in and ate. They were so kind as they talked to us. I'm not sure exactly what their customs were, so we waited until they approached us. And a bond like no other soon formed between our two families. Unbeknownst to each of our family members, we, we were having a ministry with them that they could not understand. Our family traded off being at the hospital, but it seemed each time was a divine appointment. My father, who is a minister, was there early in the mornings and was able to deeply talk with one of the Muslim fathers who happened to be their leader. Each man talked about their beliefs, how much we have more in common than we don't. However, Jesus Christ is always the path where, or the part where paths change, isn't it? The next three days, we fed them, they fed us. Every time a woman would get there, she headed straight to my arms. Every time I poured all my love on them and prayed over them, they always told us they were praying for us. Saturday night, we knew it was time to let our mom go. We were just waiting for my nephew to get off work and get there. My mom was my whole world. When I came out of the room, when we had made the decision, I was weeping and went back into the waiting room. I didn't get through the door before I was scooped up and surrounded by our new Muslim friends. They comforted me, they prayed over me, and they cried with me for my mom. My sister had befriended a couple of the younger boys, and they asked her if they could come in and meet our mom. While standing there, my sister, in the most plain words I had ever heard, explained to them the gospel and what we believe. They asked us, why have you been so kind to us? We were told Christians hated us. Pastor, hadn't you just been preaching about how if we're really Christians, we should be the ones who love people the most and be the people they can turn to? Well, that's true, and I told them what I learned from you. There were 10 of us and 50 of them, but the Lord arranged it so we could talk and share and pray with every one of them. They'd all been brought over from Pakistan by an uncle who lived in Yuba City, and they all worked on his farm. He had passed away a few months ago. They had only been in the U.S. for less than a year. As we stood around the bed of our mom and prayed and sang praise songs that our hearts were crushed by mom's death, we could hear him in the hallway praying for our mom. And then we stood and prayed with them as they unhooked their family. But what does this all have to do with your sermon on Sunday? Well, my mom's brother was there with us. My mom was more like a mother to him than a sister, and we thought of him more as a brother than an uncle. Mom practically raised him. You see, he's gay. For years, we prayed for him. My mom held the same opinion as you do, Pastor, that there's room at the foot of the cross for everyone. She loved him, and it didn't matter what his lifestyle was, she loved him. We all did. Parents left my parents' church, people left my parents' church when they found out that she had a brother who was gay. Some of her friends turned away from her because of it. She always felt, well, I guess they weren't true friends if they acted like that. She never condoned homosexuality, but she never judged people by it either. We loved his partners and all his friends, and they always were welcomed in our home and at our table. Many of the LGBTQ community have received such hatred and estrangement from their families, not just the Christian ones. They always flocked to my mom because she was so loving. Her stance on gay marriage would have always said it was a social issue. If people voted for it, it would pass. She herself wouldn't vote for it. As long as it wasn't forced on the church, there was no reason to draw lines in the sand. But even with the love we poured out on our uncle, he never showed any interest in the Lord. We've been praying since the 1970s for crying out loud, but nothing. But after watching us love on that Muslim family, which he was scared to death of, his heart broke. He finally understood what we've been telling him all along. The Lord had answered my mother's deepest prayer while she laid there hooked up to so many machines to a family of people who could have been seen as our enemy. So you see, 
When you open yourself up to love one another, you have no idea who the Lord will bring in your path. You have no idea how loving on one group of people will change a whole different group of people. Because unconditional love isn't something that anyone else in the whole world has except the church. Just by loving on someone, we release the Holy Spirit to do his work, and in turn, we are blessed beyond belief. I don't think we really understand the gift we've been given in the Holy Spirit. I finally understand what it means when Jesus said, our burden is light. All we have to do is love, and isn't that the first thing we learn as a baby? How to love. I pray as we go out and the Lord uses each one of us in different ways, we reach every place that is so dark and shine the light of love on them. I'm so incredibly blessed to be under such sound teaching. Thank you, Pastor. I would like to have you welcome to the stage not just a sweet and great man, a godly man, but a brilliant man. Would you welcome to the stage Kwame Anku? Wow, thank you. Good evening. How's everybody? Sweet and brilliant. What did I do to be called sweet and brilliant? I do not know, but I am excited to be here with each and every one of you. I'm honored to be here. It's just a pleasure and a privilege. And I'll be honest with you, I'm in awe. I'm really in awe that the fact that you all are here going through this process, right? The courage that it takes to go through this process to make the choice, and it's Labor Day weekend too. Uh, it's just amazing, and you're not just involved, but you're committed, right? We know the difference between being involved and committed, right? It's like the process of making scrambled eggs and bacon. The chicken was involved, the pig was committed, right? <laughs> that's, that's a whole different level, right? That's a whole different level. And so you guys are here, you're pouring your hearts into this process, and I can tell you, when I look at the world today, and as I sit here in this moment, I am excited. I think we're living in the greatest time in the history of the world. Uh, I can look at whatever is going on. It could be in D.C., it could be in Africa, it could be down the street. I could see turbulence and uncertainty and still feel this is the greatest time to be alive. Still feel encouraged because today I'm walking in a spirit of lightness. I'm walking in a spirit of love and I'm walking in a spirit of freedom. Now, on a personal side, it's five years ago last month uh, that I was rushed to the uh, emergency room, uh, found out I had acute uh, pneumonia in both lungs, and then went into septic shock. Uh, they told uh, my, my folks that were with me at the time uh, I wasn't going to make it through the evening. Okay? And so if that, if that had happened, uh, I would have left a beautiful little four-year-old son uh, without a father, uh, and I wouldn't be here tonight with you. And so I know it's the hand of God. I know it's his touch. I know it's his love. I know my time was not then. My time is now with you, right? And so I think about the power of the moment. This is the reason why I'm so encouraged. There's a moment in time right now that we can seize on 
they can change hundreds of years of history. Now, how do we know that? Well, when you think about the God that created us, the God that created the universe, just think for a moment the vastness of our universe because it reminds us of how powerful God is. You think about our solar system in a galaxy, in a galaxy that from one end to the other takes 100,000 years for light to travel. That's just the galaxy. Within that galaxy, you're talking about, within the universe, you're talking about hundreds of billions of galaxies of that size. And the God that we serve, the God that created us, made all of that happen with a thought. Now, God doesn't exist in time. We exist in time because God created time and put us in it. But God exists in eternal moments that in a moment, things can change. In a moment, major, major things can happen. In a moment, hundreds of years of injustice could change. Because we choose to think differently. I'm reminded of a great phrase a mentor taught me that said, when you change the way you see things, the things that you see change. And I live in that. I'm excited about the fact that we've got the ability right now in this moment to create the world that we want to live in. To not say things like, well, I'm just hoping that one day my great-great-grandchildren will have a better life than I have. We'll live in a better, more just society. I want to live in that world in this lifetime. I want to see it. I want to enjoy it. And I want to enjoy it with each and every one of you. So just quickly, uh, in terms of my background, I, I live here in Sacramento. I actually live in Natomas. Uh, I've been here since 2005. Uh, when you hear my name, Kwame Anku, you might wonder where that's from, especially because I don't talk with an African accent. <laughs> yes, my folks are from Ghana, uh, but I actually grew up in Ohio. Uh, I've, been a, I've been in California for a long time. I uh, went to Stanford University way back in the 90s. And uh, I run an investment fund. It's called the Black Angel Tech Fund. Uh, and so I was so excited that we talked today that we can talk about, you know, what's the solutions? What are we going to do? And I was asked to just share just a little bit about what it is that I do and really the mindset behind it. Uh, certainly not to encourage any of you to, you know, invest with, within a kind of fund like with what we do, but just to be thinking about the idea of massive transformation. And I'll tie it to what's going on in Sacramento as well. So... Um, the idea of the Black Angel Tech Fund came when we talked about these numbers and we heard about Pastor Lance and he talked about some of the disparities. Uh, some numbers came out a few years ago uh, in, in Silicon Valley. And they said, wow, you know, less than 2% of the folks that work at Google, that work at Apple, that work at Facebook, less than 2% are African-American. And they found that on the technical side, it was literally less than 1% in those different uh, companies and really within the Silicon Valley industry of technology, less than 1% was African-American. So there was kind of an outcry about that and some people got you know, together and organized and said, we need to put pressure on these companies so that they can hire more people of color and have more diversity because it's just the right thing to do. And I don't disagree with the, the end of that. However, I went to school with most of the folks that created those companies. And, you know, I come from African folks, and we got big heads and big egos. And I thought, I remember Jerry Yang, who created Yahoo, was raising money for Yahoo when we were in college. And he was talking about one day all the computers in the world are going to be connected to one another, and everybody's information is going to be accessible, but you're going to need a system to be able to find the information. So we're going to create this thing called Yahoo to do it. And people thought he was crazy, 
And some of you say, I don't understand what you're saying, but maybe it's going to work. I'll give you a little money to try it. And a very, very small group of people said, that's the future. So whether it was HP, whether it was Apple, whether it was Google, whether it was Yahoo, whether it was any of these companies, the reality is it started with a small group of people that had an idea. The funding came and fueled it, but only took a couple of people. So I thought about it and said, well, why are we trying to get Facebook to hire more African-Americans? Why don't we create a new Facebook? Why are we trying to get Google to hire more African-Americans? They employ 100,000 people. I know some really smart people we could get four or five together and make sure that they had some investment money and they'd create a company that could hire whoever they wanted to. So that's where the idea of the Black Angel Tech Fund was born. A group of Stanford alum got together and said, hey, we're going to create an investment fund and we're going to be like venture capitalists and we're going to invest in African-American entrepreneurs who have amazing, game-changing, planet-changing ideas because ultimately, I think most people would agree, their board of directors will probably look different than the ones that we see today that their hiring practices would be different. The opportunities that we heard from Pastor Lance and from Bishop would be more abundant. Now, for me as a believer, I take this you know, to, to a different level. Yes, I'm a business person. Yes, I'm a venture capitalist. Yes, I love investing. Yes, I love that process. But I believe in biblical principles. And we understand the power of what we sow and what we reap. And we understand the power of, not when we just plant the seed. You know, you think about this idea of reaping and sowing, that we, we plant this seed and we're going to reap what we sow. But you also have to think about multiplication. That we live in a world and a universe designed by a God that says, look, you put that seed in fertile ground, I'll make sure there's 100. And each one of those pieces of fruit will have six seeds in it. The idea that I've come to give life and give it more abundantly. The laws of the universe of this God that we serve is that of multiplication and quite frankly, exponentiality. That's why I love what I do. Because I see the investment in a technology entrepreneur as being a seed that will duplicate, replicate and create exponentiality. Which means what? It means that there'll be a young man who's having a tough time getting a job that will now have a job. And it's not just a job so that he can get a check at the end of the week. It means that he will be ultimately be able to buy the car. He'll be an example. He'll have better health insurance. He'll have less health issues. He'll be an inspiration in his community. And not just one, not just a hundred, not just a thousand, but maybe hundreds of thousands one day. So I think about a young woman, this African woman uh, named Mary Spio, and she was born in the United States, but she grew up in Ghana. Um, she created a technology company. She's literally a rocket scientist. And she created a technology company that's a virtual reality company. We believe that she's going to be like the founders of Google one day. We believe that she's going to be like the founders of Facebook one day. We've invested in her company. When we invested in her company, she was in Miami, Florida. She needed to raise some additional money, so we brought her out to Sacramento, did set up some meetings. That ultimately led to her getting over a million dollars of additional investment. She was so excited about this community, she said, you know what, I'm moving the whole company to Sacramento. So she is here as we speak. She's hiring as we speak. She's in partnership with the Sacramento Kings as we speak. Major beautiful things are happening, and we have literally, my family in Africa, has literally now given her five acres of land to build her headquarters 
uh, the African headquarters in Ghana, the country where we're from and that, that our family has been uh, blessed to be able to have quite a bit of land over there, we've been able to do that as well. So the vision is one day she'll have an amazing campus here in Sacramento. One day this will be a thriving technology company that we can embrace just like Redmond does with Microsoft, just like Cupertino does with Apple. We'll have our own homegrown massive technology company here in Sacramento. And again, it all came from an idea. So my time is up. The only thing I would encourage you uh, to just to think about as you're wrapping up this series in terms of what it is that you can do, when we think about the power of tithing and we think about the idea of giving of our time, our talent, and our treasure, I also want you to think about that in terms of investing your time, your talent, and your treasure. And we talk about investing, you could be uh, in crowdfunding. There's amazing companies that are raising money in crowdfunding. That means you could invest $100. You could invest to $500. And if those companies are successful, not only do you get that money back, you can also make some money in addition to that, right? So this is an amazing moment in time. I commend each and every one of you for having the courage to be here, to delve into these conversations, to ask the hard questions, to see what role can I play in making things better. And we are here with you as part of the community going deep, walking the walk with you, and you can count on us to just be loving partners, brothers and sisters in Christ, making it happen. God bless each and every one of you. Thank you. want you to know that God is the head of my life and so I ask him every day to order my steps. It is such a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you today and my journey of life is to really just be obedient to his will. So today I am really honored to be here to just talk to you a little bit about action. Where do we go from here? Many of you, and I'm sure you've covered what's been going on in Sacramento. I'm just a country girl from North Carolina, been here a long time um, on this journey. I always tell the story that when I went to college, I went in to be a pharmacist. When I came out, I was an urban studies person. <laughs> because I knew then a long time ago that my calling and my mission was really to help people uh, in urban environments and communities to be better. And I have spent my entire career trying to do that. And now that I'm with the Urban League, I'm even more engaged down on the community of seeing what are the needs of our people. And within the last two years that I've been with the Urban League, and we do workforce development, education, we help underserved communities really become self-economic reliant. So you're gonna hear me talk a lot about economic development and self-reliance of people because that's how we can be free, that's how we can be sustainable, and that's how we need to uh, really take charge of our lives. And so with the shooting and killing of Stephon Clark, my heart was heavy.
heavy from perspective of being a leader in the community. It, there was sleepless nights saying, what can we do? And I just wanted to share with you, because I was just filled by everything that was said, that the song came to my heart, um, I, My World Needs You. And I don't know whether you heard of it, but it says, show me your face, Lord, fill up this space. My world needs you right now. I can't escape being afraid. Fill me up right now. And then it says, can you fix what I see? And Lord, please fix me. And with that, I thought, Lord, the world, uh, and, and I will admit that there has been many, many, many accomplishments in the African-American community. Uh, but now we're in a situation where the community is experiencing trauma. And what I think we need to do is to really build black and be intentional. And so I want to talk a little bit about all that I even heard tonight, and I'm sure you've heard over this series, that if we are intentional about serving a people that has been institutionalized, um, institutionally raped, experienced institutional racism, that has been discriminated upon, that has been left behind, if we're intentional, that's where we move forward as a region. An example would be is that when we had those sleepless nights, a coalition of us got together with many different kind of voices. And you heard, we all came from different perspectives. And what we came up was with the Build Black Initiative to not take, to take a moment and make it a movement. And that means let's do something that's transformational, that's intentional, that will change people's lives, that will change our community forever. And that's under four pillows. And I just want to share those pillows with you, and I want to focus on the economic development aspect as we look at what actions we can take. The four pillows are lifting up the voices of the youth because trauma is in our community and we need to have conversations throughout our community just like you're having conversations. It should be something that we're talking about. The other is health access and, access and, and equity. Uh, I don't know whether you know, but there was a study done that said African-American children are twice, sometimes three, and four times more likely to die than their counterparts in certain zip codes. That's unacceptable. Two, you've heard about the police injustice and the fight for justice. The fourth one is building up our businesses and our neighborhoods. The opportunity that we have as a community is really, and, and that I think we all can participate in, and we, I'd like to call it as Build Black 2, T-O-O is let's look at the communities that are underserved. Let's look at the areas where African-Americans are falling at the bottom when it's good and they're at the top when it's bad. And let's intentionally focus to deal with the equity issue so that we won't have this conversation again. And so we come up at the Urban League and part of Bill Black, we're working on it and we all can partner, is of four areas that we can focus on from community economic development, and you've heard about it already, a lot of it. Jobs and economy, let's get some jobs. Let's be intentional about bringing jobs and good jobs to the community. Let's look at building small businesses and entrepreneurship that empowers communities and people. 
Let's support those businesses, whether it's the access to capital, whether it's the employment side, whether it's the STEM. And then education in children. Children, many of them are left behind throughout the state. What you see, it is just not low income, it's just not homeless and foster, it's just not English language learners. It's somehow, the statistics show that low performing students are African American. And it doesn't, they're not necessarily in those categories, which lends us to there's some institutional things going that we need to change. Let's look at the policy to address that. And the final issue in the economic sort of community economic development is the affordable housing and home ownership and asset building. I believe that the first opportunity for all of us to participate in economic development and wealth and uh, asset building is through home ownership. A statistic came out, a report came in the B about a year ago that said at the turn of the century, which was about year 2000, that African Americans in the county of Sacramento, over 50% of them own their own home. Great news. That was above what was going on in the Bay Area and Southern California and really close to the national average. By 2015, guess what happened? All of us experienced a downturn in the economy, but for African Americans, it went from 50% to 27%. Unacceptable. Ridiculous. It's going to take us not decades, but maybe a century to get back up to where we were. If we can focus on that to build economic development and wealth in families, then we start to address the issues that are the underlining and sort of pending all the institutional racialism that we don't want to talk about. I heard that there was tough conversation. I am so, just so feel that you guys are having this conversation and we're having it throughout the community as well because there are things that each of us can do. One, we can talk about it and my God, you are doing it. I am so grateful to him. And we need to be having these conversations all throughout our community. The second is we need to understand the issues because they're not as simple as you've heard the pastor talk about as us coming from our perspective. Even I, when I went to the, another training with implicit bias, I was reminded that Bill Black could be offensive to people. And we're not saying anti-anybody else. That's why I put T-O-O behind mine, because it's not stopping anything else. But let's be intentional about building Black, too. And then for all of you and all of us, I have a passion because I work it every day. It is a mission and a calling for me. You have an opportunity to join in with the partnerships, to join in in the ground, to be part of the cultural um, awareness and cultural community that can make real change in our community. I think that as we move forward, we're going to be reaching out to the whole community to become partners in Build Black too, just like Kaiser, just like cities, um, just like the Kings, just like me, just like the churches. And we all together can influence through volunteerism, through philanthropy, through policy change, through our vote 
to make a difference in our community. Thank you so much. And when you think about all of your conversation, be intentional about Build Black 200. God bless you. Thank you very much. <laughs>